Well, I invite you to turn with me to uh, Joel chapter 3. So it's the last of our studies in Joel. Joel chapter 3. Again, it's uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. You get to Amos, you've gone too far. Um, And if you're in doubt, look up the index at the front. Joel chapter 3. And you remember that uh, at the end of chapter 2, Joel, from verse 28 to to 31, 32 rather, um, uh, those words of Joel are taken up by Peter in the sermon at Pentecost. So that's significant. We'll say more about that in a moment. But having said that, uh, Joel says in in chapter 3, For behold, in those days, at that time, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people my, and my, my heritage, Israel. Because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold, and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold... I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payments on your own heads. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the land of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle. For the harvest is ripe. Go in, go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So that you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountain shall drip sweet wine. And the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. 
and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we come to your word again, and we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we come to the last chapter of Joel, and uh, we've seen that though God has sent uh, a sore providence to the people of God with the plague of locusts, he has done so in order to get the attention of the people and call them to repentance, uh, to call them out of their comfortable lives, their complacent lives of wealth and riches and come to God and repent of their sin. And what we've discovered in this book is when people do come and repent of their sin, then God opens up for his people a vision of life after repentance. A life that is full and far more satisfying than they have ever previously known. Because the key difference now is this. Uh, If you look back to chapter 2, verse 26 and 27, he says, You shall eat plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You see, it's the Lord in the midst of his people that is the great blessing for the people of God. As they come to repentance, yes, there's fullness, but there's fullness as the Lord is in the midst of the people. And while we're wondering why, when that time is going to come for, for these people, we read that passage at the end of Joel, verses 28 through to 32 where Joel speaks those words that are taken up by Peter on the day of Pentecost. And those words of Joel, they explain what was happening on that day of Pentecost, when the the Holy Spirit came in power and came with tongues of fire upon the apostles. And they began to speak in other languages that people could understand. And everybody was saying, what's this what's going on here? Everybody can understand what we can understand what they're saying. Maybe they're drunk. <laughs> and uh, Paul, uh, Peter then quotes Joel to them. He said, this is happening now. What Joel said then is happening now. As it were, the ascension of Jesus Christ after his resurrection into heaven opened the floodgates of God's blessing upon the church in the giving of the Holy Spirit to come down in tongues of fire. And that was the beginning, as Peter put it, of these last days. And life would come. Life comes to the people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And as people in repentance and faith come to Jesus Christ, they can be reconciled to God and that he will dwell in their midst. That's what we believe as Christians today, that God dwells in our midst. The house of God is not a building. The house of God is made up of living stones. It is a living temple made up of people. And the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in the midst of his people. It's one of the reasons why it's so important to be gathering as the Christian church. Because in a special way, as I've said no doubt many times to you, and you realize, I keep saying this, God comes amongst his gathered people in a special way. Well, as we come to this last chapter, and we look more closely at, at this judgment of God that he has alluded to earlier in chapter 2, um, I've got four things I want to say about this last chapter. Uh, firstly, I want to just make a, an interpretative point and talk about eschatology. And it's only brief. I, I can't go into all of eschatology today, but uh, it's just a brief comment about Old Testament prophecy. Then we get into the text and we've got three things to say about the judgment that's to come. Firstly, the, the setting of the judgment in verses 1 to 8. Secondly, the summons to judgment in 9 to 17. And then the sequel to judgment. Amazingly, I have alliterating headings for those last three points. A set it, the setting, the summons, and the sequel to judgment. But first of all, let me just say a few words about eschatology. And when I say eschatology, I mean, it comes from the Greek word eschatos, means last, the last things. And uh, um, the, the passage... We, obviously, the passage we have has a great deal to say about the last things. And, uh, and one could spend a long time talking about eschatology. Let me just make a brief point. Uh, something that we need to have always in our minds as we read Old Testament prophecy, as we move, as it were, from, from Old Testament into New Testament and beyond, is that there is a, a movement. The Bible kind of takes us on a journey, if you like, uh, and it might be characterized in, in these three ways. It's from prophecy to fulfillment, um, from uh, type to substance or pattern to the real thing, or from uh, shadow to reality. Uh, so you understand that everything in the Old Testament, although it's expressed in very concrete terms, uh, they're real things that actually happened and real things and real features of Old Testament religion and so on. They are only shadows of the reality to come. Let me just uh, give evidence for that. Hebrews 8 verse 5. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews is speaking about the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. And he says, they, co- they serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. So everything that you read in the Old Testament about you know, the temple, the Levitical priesthood, the sacrificial system, uh, uh, even the state of Israel, everything about it is a shadow of the heavenly reality that is to come. That's really important as we uh, come to a prophecy like this. Um, so there are many things in the Old Testament that, that were real, had their place at that time, but they're only a shadow of what is to come. When it comes to prophecy, 
those real yet shadowy things are used to speak of heavenly realities that are yet to come. Uh, in this passage, we see three of them. Let me just mention, there's, there's Israel and Judah together. I'll take those two things together as one thing. Uh, there's Jerusalem, and there is Zion. All of these uh, uh, come together. But each of those things, we need to have this in our minds, each of those things is a shadow of a reality that is to, yet to come. Um, let me just, and, and this is what you actually see in the New Testament. Um, let me just work through th- those three things. <clears throat> For example, Jerusalem. There is a greater Jerusalem yet to come. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse 26. Paul speaks about, the, he compares the, the earthly Jerusalem and the Jerusalem that is above which is our mother, intriguingly, which I can't go into. He says that's our mother. But he's speaking about that eschatological city uh, of which all Christians become citizens. Or similarly with Zion, you know, the mountain that sits under Jerusalem, Mount Zion. But the writer to the Hebrews tells the Christian church, and it's all Christians everywhere, he says, but you have come to Mount Zion. You Christians, wherever you are, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Hebrews 12, 22. There is a sense in which we gathering here today, we come to Mount Zion. Or, um, and, you know, in Jesus tells us not to think in terms of geographical location. I remember speaking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. It's, it's not the place that now matters. We worship in spirit and in truth. And when we do that, we come to Mount Zion. Um, and we can make the same kind of arguments about Israel and Judah. Um, uh, the New Testament speaks of an Israel that is not limited to a particular group of descendants of Jacob or living in one place. But related, and all of them are but speaking about people who are related to God by faith and who now live for him, the Israel of God. And if you look closely at the Old Testament, you'll see that it's not just the descendants of Jacob who can be counted as Israel. Uh, I invite you to look up in your own time, Exodus 12, 48, to see how a stranger and a sojourner, if he is willing to be circumcised and come into the faith, he can be treated as a native of Israel. Exodus 12, 48. So, so there's so much more that could be said, so I just lay that all out for you. Uh, But our point here is to say that we must not limit our thinking here to certain concrete places and times and uh, people groups but to realize that God is using, as it were, concrete forms of the Old Testament to communicate something about what is coming at the end of all things, at the end of time. And this passage speaks of God's judgment and his blessing on his people. Let's look at verses 1 to 8 and see the setting of God's judgment. At the end of chapter 2, we saw the beginning of the gospel age. Uh, This is how Peter applied Joel's prophecy. And so we find in verse 1, 
uh, Joel says, For behold, in those days at that time, so God says through Joel, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, remember, you think about Judah and Jerusalem in a bigger, uh, bigger way than simply a geographical location. But something else is happening here, as well as the gathering of the people of God. There is the nations being gathered into the valley of Jehoshaphat, verse 2. Now, commentators are divided as to whether the valley of Jehoshaphat is actually a real place. Um, Some have tried to identify it. Um, I'm not sure that that's all that important. uh, Because the significance of the valley of Jehoshaphat is in the name, which means Jehovah will judge. Jehovah, Yahweh, will judge. The Lord will judge. And what's being pictured here is the nations being gathered into one place, as it were, gathered into the courtroom of God, where God sits in the th- on his throne. And the nations are coming not to take issue with God, but rather because God has brought them. It is God's initiative to gather the nations into his presence before his judgment seat. And what can we say about this judgment from these verses? Well, the first thing to say is that God is acting for his people in doing this. When he carries out his judgment, he is acting for his own people. God always has his eye on his people. Throughout history, God has always had the people, his own people, as the apple of his eye. His singular focus is on his own people. And all of history is about how God is working to do good things for his own people. He is always uh, keeping his eye on them. And that's true in the Bible and it's true throughout history since. God always has his eye on his people. But God's people have always suffered at the hands of nations and peoples. God's people have been rejected, opposed, persecuted even to the point of death. And there will be a reckoning against the nations that have done that to God's people. There will be a bringing to account so, for example, if, there's a, if, there's, if a government has sought to oppress the church of Jesus Christ, its officers will one day face the judgment of God. Or if an individual has a personal animus against Christians, there will one day come a reckoning for him or her. And so you see, God's justice is not simply an abstract principle of justice. But he is exercising justice against the nations for the sake of his people. It actually serves to to redeem his people. His people need to be saved out of the oppression that they are undergoing. That's true of our civil justice system in this country, isn't it? We don't just have a justice system in our society that deals with the criminal. We have a justice system for the sake of the rest of society. So that the rest of the society can function. The righteous are, are rewarded and the evildoers are punished. Romans 13. It makes life better for everyone else if justice is seen to be done. How much more so with God? His judgment is for his people. 
and it will advance their salvation by judging the nations. The second thing to say about this judgment is that once people have come into the valley of Jehoshaphat, there is no opportunity to make amends. If you look at verse 4, God kind of uh, uh, almost mocking them, uh, the nations. They say, what are you to me, O Tyre, Sidon, and the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you're paying me back, I'll return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. It's almost as though the people have come into the valley of Jehoshaphat, and at that last moment when the judgment is, a, is, is about to be pronounced, the, the, the nations are saying, what can we pay you, God? What can we give you to, to change your mind about these things? And God says, I'll just pour, I'm going to pour this back on your head speedily. The time to make amends is gone, is what the Lord is saying here. Um, as one commentator put it, it's like a murderer trying to make amends to the bereaved family by returning a piece of the victim's clothing. How appalling would that be? How offensive is that uh, to the, the grieving family? So too with God. So trying to make amends at this last moment is an offense to God. That's why he says, your payment, I'll, I'll return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. No, your sins are too great. You can't make amends. There's nothing you can pay to pay back God at that, on that day of judgment. Nothing can be done. So what's the answer? Well, we've actually seen it already in this book. The answer is not to wait till then and try and kind of haggle with God about letting you off, the thing to do now is to do it now, is to come in repentance, saying, I, I have all my sins, and I can't, I can't pay my sins, but I cry out to you, Lord, in repentance, and I cry to you to forgive me. And we've already seen, this is a God who suddenly opens up all his grace and his mercy to you, and you see it. And you see how gracious and kind and good he is. That he will receive you in that moment. You don't need to pay off your sins. You and I, we don't need to. God himself will deal with it. And he will let you go free. So time, the time is now to deal with God. Because when you come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, there is no going back. So that's the, the setting of the judgment. Let me move next to the next section, which is the, the summons to judgment in verses 9 through to 17. And you'll notice that um, it begins to talk in terms of uh, the nations consecrating for war, verse 9. And it's, it's almost like a kind of high-stakes game that God is leading these people into, the nations into. Judgment is not a little quiet affair. Judgment is... A call to arms for those who are accused. Um, consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let the men of war draw near. Let them come up. This is what God is saying to the nations. Come on, you lot. Get ready for this war that's coming. But there's an irony in what God is saying here. Because the truth is that there is no power on earth that can stand against the mighty power of God. 
So there's a kind of irony and mockery going on here. It's, it's set against the pride and the arrogance of the world. Come on then, do your worst. Gather into this valley of Jehoshaphat. Let's see. Hasten and come, says God. Come on then. And so all the world is summoned to the place of judgment to give account to God for their lives. And when it happens, uh, when it happens, it happens because God says it. It's not when the nations say it. It's not the nations being prepared and made ready uh, and having enough. God is saying, do it now. Do it now. Come. comes in God's time. And so the picture of what judgment will actually be like is not a battle between two similarly matched adversaries, but rather it'll be more like a harvest. You see that there in verse 13, put in the sickle. Well, the harvest is ripe. Go and, tr- go and tread, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for the evil is great. It's, it's, it's like a harvest. You know, the harvester comes with a sickle. And uh, just like a crop is powerless against the sickle, uh, so will the, the nations be against the power of God. And he scythed them down. This is the terrible picture of God's judgment. There is no power against God when he comes in judgment. Or think of those grapes that have been scythed off the vine thrown into the vat and now are being treaded down and wine is pouring out. Uh, can the grapes resist? No, it's pathetic, isn't it? That's the nations, you see. The nations are like the grapes that are powerless to resist the treading of God's wine press. And this is the picture that is taken up in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 14. Let me read this. This section to you. John says, When I looked and behold, then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, the, the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who had authority over fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had a sharp sickle, Put in your sickle, and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth, and gathered the grape harvest of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath. Of God and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. A huge place. Do you get the sense of this? The judgment of God, and Jesus Christ will be there, and he will swing his sickle in judgment. What a dark day that will be! For it will be the valley of decision. 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Whose decision? Not your decision, not my decision. God's decision. The decision of judgment. Will there be a last chance? No. The decision will be made. 
His judgment will come. All opportunity will be lost. What a dark day that will be. Friends, are you ready for the summons of God that will inevitably come to all people? It comes the day you die. Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. There's nothing in between. You die, straight to judgment. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for the day when you come face to face with God in all His awesome holiness? I don't think many people are ready for that. The great Roman philosopher Cicero once observed, no man is so old that he does not think he will live another year. No man, think about that. No man is so old that he doesn't think he's got another year to live. Nobody thinks they're going to die tomorrow. Except death comes very suddenly to people. Are you ready for the judgment that comes after that? But I want you to notice something, as you think about that, I want you to notice something else that's going on at the time of judgment in verse 16. Look at verse 16. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. You see, the only hope on that day for anybody is to go to the Lord, is to, to have the Lord as yours. And to find a place of refuge in him from the judgment to come. And remember that all those who come to him in repentance and faith, give their lives to him, there's always an open door with God ready for that day. And so, and that time for, and time for that is now, so that you're ready for that day when it comes. So when you come to him, it's like the Lord himself, it's like he becomes a kind of, one of those fortified basements in in hurricane country, you know, all these houses that suffer hurricanes in the United States. Uh, but they've got basins, basements in the ground. It's like God becomes your, your fortified basement against the, the wrath that is to come. Or, or a bunker to protect you against the bombs that rain down against, you know, from your enemies. With God, you see, you can be safe. You come to him. You get counted as one of his people. It's kind of like you cross the battlefields. You're on one side and you're against God. You're angry with him. You're, you don't want anything to do with him all your life. And then suddenly you realize you're not going to win. <laughs> and that there is a way of salvation. And so you want to cross the battlefield. And you come across the other side and you stand behind the Lord. And he protects you against this army that you were once part of. You have protection, complete protection against his judgments. Will you not have that? Will you not have it? I speak to you young people as well. Will you not have this God as your God? This Jesus as your King and Lord? Will you not come across the battlefield? Will you not hide behind him? Will you not have him as your refuge and your strength all your life? Ready for that day. Come and be safe. Well, there's one more thing to say about this. The sequel to judgment. Verses 18 through to 21. And, and, and what you see here is something like after a thunderstorm has passed by. You know how 
The thunderstorm brings chaos and you're hiding. But then the darkness of the storm passes and then the sun comes out and the beauty begins to emerge from the ground. It's kind of like that with God's judgments. After the judgment, the beauty of God's creation, new creation, begins to emerge. So in time of judgment, you know, you get this picture of paradise that emerges in verse 18. In that day the mountains will drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. It's not simply, notice it's not simply reverting back to some past glory. Um, It's not even going back to the Garden of Eden. It's actually going far beyond the Garden of Eden. That's what you find in the Old Testament prophecy. Everything seems to be bigger and better and, and louder and you know, sweeter and more tasty. and Everything's much more. So you see these mountains dripping with wine, the, the hills flowing with milk, and poetic language to speak of the fruitfulness of the land. And as you go through the verse, you may, you may recognize some of the language that appears later in the New Testament. Uh, the fountain that comes from the house of the Lord. Well, of course, in the Old Testament, there was no fountain in the house of the Lord. Uh, but this is, a, this is an eschatological picture. And uh, you see it in Revelation 22, where this great heavenly temple appears. The city appears. In Revelation 22, verse 1. The angels showed me a river of, uh, of the water of life, bright and crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. You see, God is the source of all life. God gives this new land life, the new heavens and the new earth. He gives it life. And it's a beauty and a glory that's far beyond even Eden. This is the ex- eschatological picture of final rest. All sin has been dealt with. All pollution has been removed. All enemies have been defeated, resulting in the glorious salvation of God's people into a life where they will enjoy God in all his fullness forever. This is where Joel has been leading his readers all the way through this book as we come to, as we finish reading it. The people have gone from complacency through repentance to a vision of salvation from the judgment is, that is to come. But it's there for us too. Do you believe what Joel is saying to us today? Do you believe that you need to repent of your sin? Do you believe you need to have God as your refuge and your strength? Come to him and you'll find an open door. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Uh, this wonderful book and uh, the way in which it opens up to us the glory of your kingdom. We pray that you'd help us to live lives of repentance, looking forward to the glory that is to come. We pray we'd see it all in Jesus Christ. Amen.